early 1970s, American crooner Johnny Nash shot up the Billboard 100 charts with his number one single, I Can See Clearly Now. Its familiar refrain is immediately recognizable as it has found its way into various movies, TV commercials, and chart-topping cover versions over the years. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, sunshiny day. 47 years later, in an age of evolving digital imaging techniques, Nash's upbeat, reggae-infused tune suddenly has a touch of scientific foresight about it. Today's technologies are providing scientists and engineers with previously unavailable vantage points into visually daunting environments. From fog-suffocated urban locations to low-radiation medical x-rays to perpetually enshadowed lunar landscapes, we're now able to remove visual obstacles and see more clearly than ever before. Welcome to If Win, Jacob's series of interviews exploring the world of emerging technologies. I'm Paul Teese, your host, and in this episode of If Win, we will be discussing advancements in digital imaging with Paul Reed Smith, Managing General Partner of PRS Guitars and Founder and Manager of Digital Harmonic, Mason Barron, Chief Technology Officer at Digital Harmonic, Dr. Lisa Vanderblomen, recently Jacob's Manager of the Exploration Science, Earth Science, and Remote Sensing Unit, and Sarah Dietrich, Lunar Geoscientist and Simulant Specialist for Jacobs. Paul Reed Smith is a guitar maker, musician, founder, and managing general partner of PRS Guitars, the third largest U.S. manufacturer of electric guitars. Additionally, Paul is a founder and manager of a new startup, Digital Harmonic. The fundamental technology of Digital Harmonic was developed by Paul and his father, Jack W. Smith, an applied mathematician who developed and implemented math models and engineering solutions for the Navy and Air Force. Both companies combined hold over 100 registered trademarks and nearly three dozen patents that Paul developed and or directed. As Chief Technology Officer, Mason Barron leads the technology department at Digital Harmonic with 18 years of software development, artificial intelligence, machine learning, surveillance, reconnaissance systems design, imagery, signal, and radar processing experience. Most recently, Mason served as Minotaur Chief Naval Architect at Allion Science and Technology, and before Allion, Mason was Chief Engineer of Battle Force Projects at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, where he was a Principal Designer, Lead Developer, and Lead Engineer. During her tenure at Jacobs, Dr. Lisa Vanderblomen managed the International Space Station's Earth Science and Remote Sensing ESRS Group at NASA Johnson Space Center. The ESRS group provides operations and science team functions for handheld crew, camera crew photography of Earth from the ISS, coordinates ISS remote sensing response to natural disasters and other dynamic events, and builds regional remote sensing capability in support of climate change science. Lisa's technical expertise includes database management, temporal spatial analysis of oceanographic and hydrographic data, and algorithm development. Her distinguished career involves a variety of academic positions in the fields of oceanography and environmental science, as well as serving for nearly 30 years as a U.S. Navy Reserve Commander. Sarah Dietrich is a lunar exploration geoscientist in the Astro-Materials Research and Exploration Science Division at NASA's Johnson Space Center. She uses remote sensing and lunar sample data to understand lunar surface properties and the resource potential of the moon. Sarah also studies the development of planetary surface simulants for engineering systems and helps with advanced mission planning, such as identifying safe landing sites for the Artemis missions that will return humans to the moon by 2024. 
Paul, how does a musician and someone who manufactures high-end guitars get started in digital imaging and enhancement? My father was an applied mathematician for the Navy and the Air Force, and of all strange things, was in charge of getting the first radars built here in this country. And so both my parents were mathematicians, and I didn't think I carried the math gene until my son became a math teacher. He said, Dad, they teach math three ways. They teach it numerically, one plus one equals two. They teach it solve for X, and they teach it graphically, and you're doing nothing but graphic math. So in a way, I'm like a walking SOLIDWORKS program um, because a guitar maker's taking it apart and moving it around his head in three dimensions all the time. And so I kind of got my head around that. And my father started and I started working on some things for inventions for the music business. We ran into something for digging information out of files that would either be waveforms or images. And that's how I got involved. It's actually not that odd that a guitar maker makes a machine, whether it be digital or analog. That's what we do here. I know it sounds like a stretch, but I came from a family of mathematicians. It is interesting to me that when you were looking at the data in audio waves, you were able to use math to create visual images. Is that correct? Sure. So your ears are a measuring device for sound waves, pressure waves, and your eyes are a measuring device for photons, for photon waves, right? Things at speed of light. Same thing with a camera. It's a measuring device. Same thing with the microphone and the digital audio that we're talking into. So they're not that far separated. And in my world, because I was taught by real life situations, not by school and by individuals teaching me, I never saw it that much different. So I just see a camera as a capturing device for partials, a up, down, left, right, amplitude capturing that would be a pixel and in a waveform you've got time frequency amplitude i just see it as changing the dimensions of the the moment captured so i know that sounds very simplistic but welcome to the way i think sorry lisa to turn it over to you in your work with nasa's remote sensing unit you oversaw a team of human professionals who worked with cutting edge technology on board the international space station to produce imagery in that vein, what direct role do you see human professionals playing in the years ahead with emerging technology such as machine learning? Well, Paul, machine learning can be useful in many, many different disciplines. And some of the ones today that are really making use of machine learning to help their field are uh, healthcare, for instance. Machine learning will does facilitate accurate medical predictions and diagnoses. For instance, mammograms that uh, we females are required to, to take. Basically, uh, with the use of machine learning and AI are now, are soon going to be able to be interpreted much more accurately than the human professional can actually do. Also, not just healthcare, but in the business world, as we know with the increase in technology these days, the amount of data that is available in any of the many different disciplines, such as the business world, uh, it's just huge. It's difficult to make use of all of that data. Sometimes it just goes to waste. But uh, with machine learning and different types of machine learning, that can assist a lot in the consumption of this data and actually the eventual analysis of that data much more quickly and more accurately. And also something that I recently came across was that in the business world, I'm sure you're all just like me, I get a ton of spam, particularly on my cell phone. But with machine learning, the promise is that that can help with reducing some of that spam that we all tend to get. Uh, so some of the, those are some of the areas besides just the science world and the engineering world where machine learning can take 
can be very, very helpful. Paul, on that theme, what are you seeing as some of the top commercial applications for advanced imaging technology, such as the work you're doing at Digital Harmonic? Uh, that question, we could spend all hour on that one. Um, <laughs> human beings take in their information 80% with their eyes. A huge amount of the information and the data is visual. And whether it be looking for little imperfections in paint jobs in cars or trying to find out this thing that just happened where they got a beautiful picture of a black hole here recently or it just on and on and on and on. Flying drones at night and you can see in, in the dark without having a night vision camera, you name it. In every movie, there's this thing where some genius at the computer sits there and digs out the information and shows the people who are looking, you know, can you get anything out of this file? It's endless what you use cameras for, just like it's endless what you look your, use your eyes for. Specifically, in the area that she was just discussing using machine learning, that being able to get the machine learning to look at any image and be able to dig the information out that you're looking for is a monster. So I, with that being specific, I don't even know how to start the list. It's so big. Uh, maybe Mason, you would be in a better position to answer that than I am. That's, I think, part of the, part of the struggle to put your, put your finger on it, as you already described it. The, the potential is so wide, so varied for both remote sensing whether you're in an aircraft, you're on the ground, you're using your cell phone, or you're looking from space, or you're looking at space from the ground. It's just such a wide, it covers the entire experience as human beings that uh, it's kind of hard to pin down. But for us specifically, our job, you kind of described, you know, a lot of the things that we do are to correct for shortfalls made at the, at the time of collection or cheap sensors, or they're trying to collect good imagery at distance through atmospherics like fog, precipitation, or like you said, collect electro-optical visible imagery that's useful at night or in the diurnal, right, as it becomes night or before it becomes day, and trying to extend the range of usable sensors because in a lot of cases, it's a lot more expensive to buy new sensors than just make better use of the ones you have. I can give you I can give you a very very close specific. How about looking from a satellite at the ground and trying to find all the places where holes were dug that people put bombs in the ground trying to go after our soldiers. That would be an important. I mean the list is so long. The amount of imagery that is used to help our country protect our country, help our law enforcement. I mean Mason you were included in looking for little teeny boats in the Atlantic in rough waves. I mean it just it goes on and on and on and on looking for people running across the desert looking for um, looking for license plate numbers on cars. I had come across a quote on the NASA Lunar Science Institute website that was attributed to filmmaker Sergio Toporek. He said, consider that you can see less than 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum and hear less than 1% of the acoustic spectrum. It's fascinating to think that there's this very large world out there that we think we have a handle on with our eyes and ears, but we only experience a very small piece of that world. Sarah, let me bring you into this. You're doing work at Jacobs on behalf of its client, NASA, uh, in particular on NASA's lunar mission for 2024. What are some of the most pressing challenges you encounter in lunar imaging, and how are you overcoming those? So the main challenge that we have right now um, with our analyses that we're doing for landing site selection for the South Pole of the Moon 
is that a lot of the images at the South Pole are not really sufficient for analyses. So at the poles of the moon, the incidence angle of the sun is very low, which means that these areas receive grazing sunlight and they're actually mostly in shadow. So this means that most of our visible imagery of the South Pole of the moon, which is the area that we're currently looking at, is in shadow, which prevents us from sufficiently doing our analysis, such as boulder counts to determine hazards, because we have to switch back and forth between multiple different images that are visible in the places that we're trying to look at. So in order to overcome this challenge, we're going to be developing a way to eliminate these shadows in those images to somehow combine and overlay them together in order to only show the areas that are not in shadow. So that's our main challenge that we're dealing with right now. When you're making visual maps for NASA, what are some of the features and requirements that you have to deliver for successful mission planning? Can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, so the, our, actually our main requirements um, that we're dealing with are actually the requirements for the lander that will be landing on the moon, as well as the requirements for locating safe areas for building a future lunar base. So these include uh, surface slopes that are less than 20 degrees for landing or less than five degrees for base location. Terrain ruggedness values of less than 40 centimeters where terrain ruggedness is or defined as the, the average elevation difference between a central pixel and its surrounding eight pixels in an image, which means that we need to avoid areas that have elevation changes of more than 40 centimeters, whether that's a large boulder, a cliff, or a steep sloped crater. And then our last requirement that we need is a landing ellipse of around 50 meters in diameter or an area of around one kilometer in diameter for a lunar base location. Sarah, as you're using imaging technology to help NASA return to the moon, can you tell us a little bit about the process to determine things like potential safety hazards on the terrain, the presence of surfaced exposed water, ice, and other items of interest to mission planners? So our process to determine uh, safety hazards on the terrain includes creating maps like I mentioned before. So we create slope maps to help determine the safest places to land and to place a lunar base. So any slopes less than 20 degrees are considered safe for a lander to land on, um, while any slopes above 20 degrees could place the lander in a situation where it could potentially tip over or prevent the asset module from taking off. And any slopes less than five degrees are actually ideal for building a lunar base because you would want the building site to be as level and flat as possible. We also use high resolution visible imagery with resolutions down to a half a meter per pixel, um, which is very high resolution for orbital imagery, to manually count and locate boulders on the surface of the moon down to 50 centimeters in size. And we do this to create rock distribution maps of specific sites on the moon. And these maps help determine the best places to land that avoid these large boulders because they can get up to 30 meters in diameter, which is very dangerous and you wouldn't want to land near those boulders. Is the work that you're doing now for the lunar surface informing the work that needs to be done to prepare for the landing on Mars? Yes. Yeah, we're, we have to make sure we, everything that we're doing, we have to make sure it can also be done for Mars. So the surface exposed water ice on the moon, that's actually identified through a combination of data products. Um, this includes surface reflectance, temperature, solar flux, elemental abundance, topography, a bunch of other things. But probably the most important of these data sets is the surface reflectance. 
instruments that are orbiting the moon have measured both near-infrared and ultraviolet reflectance at the lunar surface, and they found that the wavelengths that are consistent with water ice actually increase at the north and south poles of the moon in areas that experience temperatures less than 110 degrees Kelvin, which is the temperature at which water ice is stable at the surface of the moon. So this process helps create maps of the locations of, the, of those water ice exposures, which is extremely helpful for future missions that will mine ice to use for rocket propellant and life support for humans, which is actually one of the main goals of the Artemis program to return humans to the moon in 2024. Paul, have you considered using audio and imaging technologies such as precision measuring matrix and pure pixel in space exploration? For instance, could it be used to draw forth data and perhaps images from deep space radio signals? I have a um, hunch that if we take the precision measuring matrixes as a way of digging information that you suspect might be there out of a waveform that you can't normally get to, on what's coming in with these space telescopes, we're gonna find all kinds of stuff. But I haven't done it. I know that the person in charge of mapping the nighttime sky for the entire Northern Hemisphere, out, uh, the physics professor Alex Soleil, has been looking at pure pixel as a way to help look at all the images he's captured of the nighttime sky. They're mapping the entire sky. And he's been, he's on our advisory board and has been incredibly supportive toward this. So he's considered it very carefully. We haven't spent much time in that arena, mostly because uh, we are got this new technology and we have to develop an income stream based on being able to dig this information out. And there's been other lower hanging fruit that we've been going after. Lisa, from your perspective, what are some of the most pressing challenges to creating accurate imaging and models of deep space environments? Well, when we think of deep space environments, we're talking, you know, great distances from, from the Earth. And so the primary issues that we're going to face are the lack of ability to actually be able to collect data from that distance. And actually then, once we are able to collect it, transmit it back to the Earth in a timely manner, you know, that reaching Mars is going to take years and years and years for us. Same thing with the data. So again, due to distance is the major concern, in my opinion, as well as, well, the unknown out there. And, you know, what are we going to need to be able to actually collect the data and have the correct imaging satellites uh, that will be able to get that data? Mason, in terms of pulling data from long distances and potentially using data to fill in gaps in imaging, you and I had talked before about generative adversarial networks and the like. Talk to us a little bit about how you ensure the data is clean, particularly if you have an incomplete picture, and what you're doing to deliver an accurate image. Sure, and that's a, that's a great question that kind of goes directly to the core, especially with all of the, in a lot of cases, well-deserved hype surrounding modern deep learning, or what is called artificial intelligence, really just machine learning in general. There's a lot of general desire to use, say, uh, any kind of, and it doesn't have to just be generative adversarial networks or deep learning. It can be random forests, uh, you know, Bayes networks or belief networks, however you, anytime you're using data to drive a model or to train a model to estimate the truth, given some input, you're carrying with it all of the biases and you have the tendency, especially in the case of deep learning, you are generative of information instead of extractive of it. 
And so we have to toe that line very carefully such that we don't ever use them in our, our technology because we, we, are, we are used purely for information extraction, not for entertainment or, you know, what the general in-painting world of hallucinating or postulating what might be there, we're not allowed to do. We have to extract what is. So in the case where we're trying to see through atmospheric turbulence, so just, you know, heat waves, things like that, looking through the atmosphere from a long distance, you get a lot of cases, you get a combination of time and space varying geometric distortion, which is changing the, uh, you know, changing the refractive index of the light. So it's actually bending it. And then, uh, the blurring that comes along with the diffraction when looking through the atmosphere, we can use, if we know we're staring at a stationary target, we can use time retrospection. And so we're not using external databases or external biased data to drive inference about what's going on in that scene. We're using direct information from the data feed at that time. So we can somewhat limit the moral peril of enhancing that video, but you kind of said it perfectly in that you have to be extremely careful when dealing with, when you're trying to enhance imagery, if you look at some of the state of the art things like learning to see at night or, you know, where they're taking EO imagery that was collected at night from a cell phone and they're producing very high quality daytime looking imagery. The challenge you run into with denoising or enhancement is that you do, uh, you're carrying forward the biases, which becomes uh, very challenging because we, technology isn't really at a point where we can measure, truly measure the fairness or the biased nature of, of networks. That said, however, you do, in the case of say object detection, tracking, and all of the downstream things are focused typically, like our job is to make the imagery better and to normalize it in such a way that all that downstream machine learning can be tremendously more effective in all of these different environments without loss of any of your forensic evidentiary or say Title X military applicability of the product. You touched on bias in the data, and that's a big problem that a lot of organizations are having to deal with. They have to make sure their data sets are clean, that their training sets are producing accuracy and not introducing errors in their outputs. Lisa, what role do you see technologies such as augmented and virtual reality playing in future space missions? I've actually done, just kind of looked back a little bit in, at what NASA has done in the past. And uh, actually, actually since as long ago as the mid-1980s, don't even know if Sarah was born then, but um, <laughs> where Ames Research Center actually began some prototypes of some virtual reality goggles uh, for use by the astronauts to actually help in their training and guiding them. Because when the astronauts in the future are going to be working in deep space, their assistance from home may not be immediately available. So the aim is that by using VR and AR, it may be useful in providing them useful information through that's usually ref, that in the past has been received through paper communication, normal types of communication. And so this would be another way to get that information through to the astronauts. If we think about uh, in the future too, our trip to Mars, trip or trips there, if we look at Mars and its distance from the earth, there's, there's actually a 40 minute delay in communication. Right now, we're dealing, obviously, with the International Space Station, and communication is not, not a problem there. There's not a significant delay, but on Mars, there will be. And so if there's a problem uh, at Mars or the astronauts have a critical problem or event that occurs, they, need to, they would have to wait 40 minutes or so for an answer. So hopefully with this 
machine learning, VR, AR, that type of thing might be able to assist that potential problem with time delay. Also, when astronauts are, are being sent to Mars and forced to travel such a long time in space, there's the, there are the issues of isolation and also uh, their confinement during that period of time. So some other, like over in the UK, apparently, they've done some, the National Health Service is actually in the process of developing a VR therapy that is a way to help treat mental health problems and diagnose and allow astronauts to actually interact with doctors on Earth so that they can prevent some of the potential problems that the astronauts may occur during that situation. So some of the other things that have been occurring within NASA, for instance, at Ames Research Center, again, at Moffett Field, there was a, there's a system that's been developed called NASA's Active Response Gravity Offload System. I just found out about this and I find it very interesting. It's also referred to as Argos, which actually uses a system to replicate gravity, you know, which is obviously a very different situation in deep space environments. So the intent there is to combine the Argos system and VR and actually have the, a chance to train the astronauts and immerse themselves in, in the, what they're really going to incur when they get into outer space more accurate environment and gravity. It's interesting, the idea of using augmented and virtual reality to attend to the emotional needs of humans in extreme environments, you know, where there's sensory and emotional deprivation. Sarah, I had come across the term lunar elevation model. Can you tell us what those are and how they are used in image mapping? Yeah, so Lunar elevation models or digital elevation models, they're actually created using laser tracks that are shot at the lunar surface while in orbit around the moon. So they're around the moon right now, there's called, that's what's called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has an instrument called the Lunar Orbiter Laser Altimeter, um, which shoots the lasers at the surface. So a single laser pulse is propagated through what's called a diffractive optical element, and it splits the laser into five separate beams. And these beams all hit the lunar surface and are backscattered to the sensor, which then measures the range, the surface roughness, and surface reflectance based on the characters of those laser beams. And slopes are actually determined along and across those laser tracks as well, which are then used to create elevation models of the entire moon. So what we do, we use those elevation models to create the maps, like I mentioned earlier, such as slope maps, um, terrain ruggedness maps and roughness maps of the surface so we can do our landing site analysis and lunar-based planning. Paul, bringing this together, can you tell us in layman's terms how AI and image enhancement work together? So the last Preakness race, it was in a rainstorm in the fog. And when you ran AI on it, it found very few people and very few horses because it was all foggy, right? When we made the image not have any fog and it was crystal clear what you could see the people and the horses, AI found all the horses and all the people. So uh, when you can do this pre-processing to the image to clear it up, AI has a much easier time to deal with it. I mean, it's almost like if you're looking out in a fog at your car outside, mm -hmm. AI can't see the car, but if it's a clear day, it sees the car fine. And if the imaging enhancement stuff can make you see the car clearer before AI hits it, you're home. And that's kind of what digital does. But 
I just, in layman's terms, AI needs really clean input to be able to do its job. So it's using that digital enhancement, that digital imaging. It helps clean the data out? Upstream, that's correct. Yeah. Same thing for AI looking at anything. You need really clean data to be able to have it be able to do its job. Is your technology able to draw forth images and data from environmental frequencies in the electromagnetic spectrum? For instance, from gamma rays, ultraviolet, microwaves, etc.? I'm assuming it does, but can it operate outside the normal human visual spectrum? Is it dependent on any spectrums or does it really not matter? Uh, I'm going to answer it with one sentence and hand it to Mason. The math is the math. It doesn't matter, but Mason, you should elaborate on Sure. Yeah. And, and certainly the specific, uh, the specific levers we throw based on the type of imagery coming into us or the type of signal coming into us, it, it can change very, like it varies with the type of, uh, well, really just the phenomenology present in the, in the signal that comes back to us. But for example, we've processed everything from X-ray all the way up through, you know, long wave, short wave, mid wave, several, you know, 15, 20 different bands of visible and non-visible light as well as across the radio frequency spectrum and outside of the, the electromagnetic spectrum in audio and you know, other, other waveforms that require some sort of medium to, uh, for transmission. But what you have to do is in a lot of cases very dependent and that is one area where we will use uh, modern machine learning to scene recognize the signal or imagery content we're staring at to tell us, oh, this is shortwave infrared. And that gives us a leg up in deciding which levers to automatically control and then apply our brute force math on top of it. So, but yes, we've had great success actually. In some cases, we've had a significant success outside like in being able to, for medical diagnostic imaging, being able to achieve the same diagnostic capacity in an x-ray with 80% less radiation. This last question, I'll ask Lisa and then you, Paul. Lisa, I'll ask you first. Where do you see the field of digital imaging technology headed? Well, like I mentioned earlier, healthcare, business, and those are two major areas where this type of technology can be very, very useful and increase the accuracy of, for instance, health predictions and health, different types of testing within the health community. But also, as we were talking earlier about NASA and uh, future space the, the environment that we're going to be working with, this type of technology is going to be just crucial in the ability to be able to do better scientific analysis of these environments and improve our ability to actually get crucial information that we wouldn't be able to otherwise because of the lack of the ability for humans to work in some of the, these environments and that type of thing. And Paul, where do you see the field of digital imaging technology headed? For me, there's been a fundamental change. It used to be Fortran cards and computers that took forever uh, when I was a kid, right? And now doing 6 billion calculations in uh, a 60th of a second's a joke. So that power to be able to do that many calculations has made a whole new world available to working on imaging. You're not having to truncate what you're doing, when Mason says brute force, he means every single possible calculation done on every single frame of a video. So if you're talking about uh, 10 billion calculations 30 times a second, it's not a big deal anymore on a, on a graphics card. You know, these kids have changed our world 
with these graphic programs and what we can do in terms of how many calculations a second. So when you ask what the future is, I think that what wasn't possible brute force calculation wise is now possible and changes the entire landscape because you're not just talking about modifying the image, but then you're talking about using machine learning AI to go look for what you're looking for, which is another, you know, trillions of calculations. And it can be done at a speed that is overwhelmingly fast. So to me, it's opened up the speed of calculation has opened up a whole new world to technologies that were imagined but never done. Now it's coding and working in real time is, is turning into a frame, not a second or 10 seconds, but literally in a frame, it, things can be changed. As I was preparing for our discussion today, I was looking up various data points on how the human mind processes imagery. Uh, one piece I came across from scientists at MIT said the human brain can process images that the eye sees in as little as 13 milliseconds. That will probably be nothing once the AI technology really gets up to speed. Like you're saying, it's that pure brute force power. I'd had another talk with a colleague at Jacobs, and he mentioned that at NASA, they had a million images of the moon, and they were able to apply machine learning to determine an optimal landing site on the moon. I mentioned to him that when you think about the Apollo 11 mission 50 years ago, it doesn't seem feasible to me that a human or a team of humans could pour over a million images of the moon, but we can apply modern technology to do that. There's an analogy about how fast your brain works that I love. In about a third of a second in a car accident, you're making about, I don't know, 15, 20 calculations. It's unbelievable. I mean, if you really think about what happens in the third of a second when you're trying to avoid a car accident and how many calculations are made and how many things are happening, it's, our, our brains are unbelievably fast. Our group is instrumental in uh, cataloging all of the astronaut photos that are taken all the way back from Gemini and Apollo until today. And we're talking thousands, millions of images that we have in our database. And to make them useful... In the past, what we've done is we've used uh, our, our staff members, several staff members, uh, which is very laborious and time-consuming, to actually go through all of these most of these images and try to catalog them, identify their center points and, and central features within the images to make them more useful to the public and for scientists. And now, in this, within the last couple of years, our group is now using machine learning to actually train data sets and actually be able to identify features in images uh, much, much more efficiently and much quicker than having our folks sit down hour after hour to do such a, a chore. So it's very, very useful for us and for the scientific community. I have to imagine that deploying AI and automating these tasks has got to be very liberating and very empowering. But I will also say there are some of us that actually like to catalog Mm -hmm. So we, we, we're kind of, you know, mixed, mixed uh, bag here. We don't want to give it up, but yet it's much more efficient to do it this way. There are a lot of professions out there that love AI, but they're just not sure about it. It's a new way of working that will display some skills and open up others. There's no telling what digital imaging technology is going to mean for human society here on Earth and elsewhere. I want to thank the four of you for joining me today and answering my questions. It's really fascinating what this technology is going to allow us to do. And I'm excited to see what both Digital Harmonic and Jacobs have in store for the road ahead.